Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming out to the Cato Institute in Washington, DC. My name is Kat Murthy. I'm Cato's uh, Senior Digital Outreach Manager. And you are at Cato Digital. It's an ongoing series on the intersection of tech, social media, and the ideas of liberty. Tonight, we're going to be talking about ongoing attacks on freedom of speech and the freedom of press and what we can do to combat those, uh, those attacks. Our hashtag for tonight is, as always, Cato Digital. And in the uh, spirit of free exchange and uh, freedom of expression, I encourage you all to use it liberally on Twitter and Instagram to share your thoughts, reflections, uh, favorite quotes from the panel tonight. Uh, those of you who are watching on C-SPAN or one of our online channels can also use it to tweet in questions, which I will be looking for on my phone throughout the panel. Um, the freedom of speech and the freedom of press are at the core of a free society. Unfortunately, we're increasingly discovering that far too many people might say that they support them, but when in actuality they don't support those policies that safeguard any of the above. Um, on the campaign trail, we saw both from Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump calls to close sections of the internet in order to combat ISIS and support for, flag, uh, for bans on flag burning, a constitutionally protected right. Uh, last week, even, Donald Trump doubled down on his, uh, on his dislike of flag burners with an incendiary tweet calling for all Americans who would burn the flag to lose their citizenships. He has also called uh, for tougher libel laws that would crack down on media companies that publish uh, embarrassing or unflattering information about individuals, and um, has said that the freedom of the press gets in the way of the war on terror. Meanwhile, on the campaign trail, we saw students calling the police to report hate speech because of seeing uh, Trump 2016 written in chalk on their campuses. We saw employees of Facebook petitioning Mark Zuckerberg to ban Donald Trump and all of his posts from the platform. And the Trump campaign alleged that Twitter had blocked much of its advertising on the platform because of ideological reasons. Post-2016 election, pundits uh, on both the left and the right blamed social media for the increasing polarization of the voting public. And both Google and Facebook have announced initiatives to crack down on fake news on their websites, despite controversy over what that fake news actually is. Our guests tonight are two stalwarts in the fight for free speech and the freedom of press, and we're very lucky to have them here tonight. Fleming Rose is the 2016 winner of the Milton Friedman Award for Advancing Liberty. He's also an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. And he is the author of The Tyranny of Silence, his, the first of his three books that is now out in paperback. Uh, those of you who are here in the audience will get an opportunity to get a copy signed after this presentation. Most of you probably know Nick Gillespie. He's editor-in-chief of Reason.com and Reason TV. You can find him online on Twitter at, at Nick Gillespie. Uh, my big hours, by the way, are uh, between about 2.30 uh, and 3.30 in the morning. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for something to do, yeah. It's the best time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I want to get that new Trump, those Trump tweets out there. Retweet them immediately. 
Fleming, your life changed uh, radically on September 19th, 2005. Can you tell us why? <clears throat> Not right away, but uh, September 19th, 2005 was the day that uh, the so-called cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad were published uh, in the, by the newspaper I worked at back then, Jyllandsposten. Uh, I mean, nothing happened uh, right away. Mm -hmm. On the day of the publication, I just received one phone call from a newspaper vendor who had been at the mosque and complained and said he would not sell the <coughs> newspaper anymore. But as a newspaper editor, you get those calls every now and then. So uh, it took a while until I understood that this may change my life. <laughs> right. And uh, why did you publish those cartoons? Well, the cartoons didn't come out of the blue. Um, they were published as part of a debate about self-censorship and uh, violence uh, regarding Islam in Denmark and Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were several cases um, pointing to the issue of self-censorship and intimidation. A Dutch filmmaker was being killed in Amsterdam in 2004. Um, there were other cases. So, so there was this debate, is there self-censorship or not? And if there is self-censorship, is it based in actual fact or just in the imagination of those who censor themselves? And to find out, we invited, uh, I invited cartoonists uh, in Denmark to draw the prophet as they see him. And, uh, and I received 12 cartoons uh, from 25 active members of the Association of uh, Danish Cartoonists. And some of those people did express that they would they would want to publish anonymously, or there were uh, well, yes. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why we published was that um, it all started with a children's book about the life of the Prophet Muhammad, and the illustrator who did those illustrations insisted on anonymity, which is a form of self-censorship. You do not want to appear under your own name out of fear for the consequences. Uh, Can I also, I, I mean, it's the case that Muhammad, uh, there, a, a dominant strain of thought in Islam is that you should not uh, figure the, the prophet. Yes, especially so, in, within Sunni Islam, yeah. but I didn't know that at the time. But in fact, I mean, if you ask, there is a very famous um, uh, uh, American um, scholar of uh, Islamic art, Oleg Graba, uh, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, and he said afterwards that, that there is no basis in the uh, Quranic texts, in uh, the text for uh, the, in the canonical text for uh, banning images of the Prophet, and and within Shia Islam, I mean you you have images of uh, of the Prophet. So so, uh, but recently that's true. It's been banned, but you have throughout. Um, uh, Islamic history, you have a museum in Copenhagen where you in fact have a 13th century image of, uh, of the prophet. So, so it's not true that, uh, you know, right. it's, uh, it's uh, an eternal taboo within uh, Islam. But it is true that depictions of living things is not uh, quite common. If you go into a mosque compared to a church, okay. you will see no images uh, in a mosque. But This is a good are... reason to avoid both. Right? Yeah. Keep your weekends free. <laughs> yeah. Now you saw, there was a violent reaction though after these cartoons came out. Multiple embassies uh, around the world were set on fire. I think um, over 100, 139 people were killed in protests. Um, Probably you more. You saw, right, yes. 
Do you regret publishing the cartoons? No, I don't regret publishing this, uh, these cartoons. I mean, they were in line with my fundamental approach to journalism. And it says, uh, you know, if there is, if you hear about a story, if you hear about an issue, you want to find out if it's true or not, mm -hmm. right? That's what you do as a journalist. And we just chose an untraditional way. Instead of just asking people, we invited people working with images as you know their medium uh, to show in 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 praxis what uh, how how they how they view this uh, issue uh, but of course i don't believe that a cartoon is worth a single human life yeah. uh, the challenge for any editor and journalist is what do you do when there are people out there who believe that it's okay to kill because of a cartoon well, you yourself, you yourself were put on uh, Al Qaeda's uh, hit list alongside Salman Rushdie, the now late editor of uh, Charlie Hebdo, um, and uh, your your own newspaper, despite supporting you publicly, uh, did give you a very restrictive uh, list of rules on how you were allowed to engage. Quite uh, late in the game, in two thousand and eleven, after I published uh, this book in in Denmark in two thousand and ten. It, it was in, in a situation of emergency, I would say. I mean, there, there, there were between five and ten foiled attacks or plans to attack the newspaper. So it was a, it was a very unusual situation, and that's why I, I accepted you know, this dictate in 2011. Um, uh, but, but a year later, when uh, I was told that this will be in effect as long as you're employed by this company. I was not allowed to speak and write about religious issues. I was not allowed to speak and write about the cartoon crisis. I was not allowed to speak and write about the, uh, the organization of the Islamic Conference or Islamic Cooperation International Organization. Um, I said, you know, that I, I disagree strongly, and I, I will, I will take the consequences if I am not able to live with this at some point. And uh, it was emblematic of the same chilling of speech that you were. Uh, it was a way. It was a. Were... It was a huge victory for the jihadists. I mean, I, uh, I don't. I'm not on speaking terms with, uh, with uh, you know, colleagues and friends whom I've known for 25 years. Uh, mm -hmm. The top management as, at at the newspaper. They tried to silence me, and in the end, I. I broke with them, and I left the newspaper, and we don't talk anymore. So, so uh, I mean, friendships were ruined. Mm -hmm. uh, fundamental um, uh, journalistic principles were violated. Uh, uh, and that's a huge victory for uh, the jihadist veto, mm -hmm. or the assassin's veto, as, as Timothy Gardner, the British historian, called it uh, a few years ago. Now, Nick, in uh, 2015, you faced similar pressure to value security over liberty. Yeah, it was. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that? and uh, first, let me just say thank you for having me, and it's a real honor and a privilege for me to be on a stage with somebody like Fleming, who is, and and I hope you all appreciate both what he said when he said, you know, no cartoon is worth a human life, and uh, as somebody who reads you know, editorial cartoons almost every day and even publishes them on a weekly basis. I agree with him completely and also the principles for which he really made a bold statement is, is really just fantastic. And I would like to give him a round of applause for standing up for, I mean, as, 
as Kat was saying, I mean, as a, as a bedrock principle of a free society, of an open society, of a truly liberal society, of a libertarian society, free speech, free expression, I think free assembly as well, these are all intertwined and they're really at the core. And I say that as a, a, a bit of a preface to say, like, I feel bad to be on the same stage as somebody who's like, well, I, in the name of a foundational civil, civilizational value, I publish a bunch of cartoons, and then insane jihadists who, who pervert the very religion they purport to represent tried to kill me and killed hundreds of people around the globe and caused all kinds of mayhem. My uh, contribution to uh, you know, free speech is much, much smaller. Um, it may be more common for more of you, but uh, essentially last year, um, if all of you know uh, or have heard of the Silk Road website, which was a dark web or a deep website where people could buy and sell anything they wanted, basically, using Bitcoin. They were anonymous users. It was used to uh, traffic in a lot of drugs. The person who was ultimately uh, convicted of founding and running the site, Ross Ulbricht, was um, he went on a long trial. He essentially got a life sentence, which he's appealing now from a judge in New no York. Parole. What's that? With no chance of parole. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's uh, you know, uh, he's going to be locked up for the rest of his life, almost certainly. Uh, he is appealing it. But when the, uh, he, uh, when the judge handed down her sentence, Catherine Forrest, the judge in the Southern District of the uh, uh, Federal Court of New York, um, she spent a long time haranguing him about his libertarian beliefs and who did he think he was that people should be able to come and freely trade whatever they wanted in a consensual nature. You know, what kind of bastard are you? I'm exaggerating a little bit. So I wrote up a, a post at Reason.com about the, um, the outcome of the trial, which I think was wrong, and also, uh, you know, that the judge went off on a tangent, really. Like, she wasn't f talking about the law. She was mad that this guy would have done this. Mm -hmm. um, and then in re response to that, a couple of our commenters, we have an unmoderated comment section at Reason. It's increasingly rare um, to have any comments on websites for reasons that I think will become clear over the conversation tonight. Um, but a couple of them uh, made, uh, literally six, six people uh, uh, made comments uh, that were making fun of the judge. A couple made jo jokes that were threats. Uh, uh, based on Fargo, the movie Fargo. There's a scene where a guy gets fed into a wood chipper. They made a couple of references of that. They made things about, oh, well, you know, when the revolution comes and they round up the judges, they should put them one behind another so you save bullets, things like this. We got, um, a week or so after that, we got a subpoena asking for all of the information that we had on our commenters, uh, which was not all that much uh, because we don't actually... We ask people if they want to comment, uh, they need to supply a valid email address. And then there's a variety of other information they may or may not give. Um, and we were, um, because they, uh, the federal, a federal prosecutor was, uh, had a standing grand jury that was related to the Silk Road trial, and they said that these were threats against the life of a federal judge with a very serious charge. Um, and they wanted that, and um, we were faced uh, with the question of whether or not we go public with that <laughs> subpoena or not. Do we tell the people or do we just comply with the subpoena? And um, we ended up doing, uh, based on legal counsel, we, told, we let the people who were the subject of the subpoena, okay. the six commenters, we got in touch with them and told them about it. 
and we wanted to find out if they were going to uh, qua try and quash the subpoena, which was ridiculous on its face. And then we got a gag order the day after because our, our lawyer said to the uh, federal prosecutor who had gotten in touch with us, well, we told the people uh, you know, on, uh, who were named in the subpoena about this, and we're waiting to see if they're going to quash it. And they said, you can't do that. You're under a gag order, which means you can't even mm -hmm. say to people if they ask you, are you under a gag order? You just got to be like, you know, you, I mean, you're not allowed to say anything. And uh, the federal prosecutor had fucked up, and they hadn't issued a simultaneous gag order with the subpoena. So then they issued a gag order. And then we were kind of stuck. One of the commenters leaked the, uh, the subpoena to Ken White, who's a, uh, a criminal defense attorney in uh, California, runs a great legal blog called Popat. And he wrote a story about this, and then he called me up for a comment to ask whether or not we were, in fact, under a, a gag order. And I was like, I really have no comment, which is effectively <laughs> the same as saying, yeah, we're under a gag order. Uh, and so that was a chilling effect on our speech. We ended up protesting. We spent thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars and of man hours uh, dealing with this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, in, in a way it's interesting. You called it the assassin's veto. And it's certainly that we had a chilling effect from the federal government, essentially saying, mm -hmm. you know, okay, yeah, you have a right to free speech, but we're going to make you kind of work for it and pay for it in a way, plus the chilling effect on the commenters. The happy ending in that story was because of what uh, Ken White's uh, great coverage and this just fantastic piece of article, look it up on, Pope, on the Popat blog, um, it, it, we generated a huge amount of media sympathy from different mm -hmm. groups because it turns out the federal government has tens of thousands of requests. There is no way of really kind of cataloging and or calculating how many they ask for information from places like YouTube, from places like Facebook, Twitter, uh, you name it, tens of thousands, other uh, press organizations for information on uh, readers and commenters, and oftentimes with a gag order, so nobody really knows how many times this is happening and how often. Right, and you are in a unique position here, because you were the writer of the original piece that the commenters had commented on, but you were also the editor-in-chief of a very ideological libertarian yep. publication. Do you think that you could have expected a, another media source uh, to have responded in the same way? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the way that most media sources, and this goes to, it's a more subtle erosion of the ideal of free speech and of free expression and of an open and unfettered exchange of ideas. Um, what most sites have done, or most publications, many publications have done, there's, there's two uh, responses generally. One is that they will use a service like Discus, D-I-S-Q-U-S, mm -hmm. which is a commenting plugin for a variety of website content management systems so that the comments are actually technically published by a wholly different organization than the, the site that mm -hmm. they're, they're on. Uh, and it gives you a certain amount of distance from that. Um, or you just get rid of comments altogether, which is more and more common, uh, where people just don't have comment section anymore. And, you know, the Internet um, and the World Wide Web, uh, which I guess is just called the web now, excuse me, for being old. Um, but in the early 90s, one of the utopian dreams, and it's, and it's delivered on a lot of this, not completely, 
was, wow, we could have real conversations, that it wasn't just you know, waiting a couple of weeks for the New York Times to publish a 100-word letter from somebody bitching and moaning about something, but you could have real-time discussions and a flourishing of speech uh, you know, of the public square could be everywhere and always and always had more room for comments to something where things have really become shut down in, in many significant ways. Mm -hmm. So, Nick, you, you defended um, essentially the freedom of speech of people who were making death threats, although there's mm -hmm. a lot of question over how serious those were. And Fleming, you actually received death threats yeah. for supporting freedom of speech. Do you, the, what is the difference there? Should the people making those death threats get fr freedom of speech as well, or what's well, the... I think if you, if, you, if you look at the American situation and the First Amendment, uh, uh, a death threat in order to be illegal needs to be followed by more or less immediate action. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Europe, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, in Europe, people may be convicted for uh, a speech like this, but I'm more in favor of the American approach, uh, that, that, that you, there needs to be a clear and present danger. Right. Uh, even though you may not think it's funny for the judge, uh, but uh, I mean... Uh, someone making Fargo jokes is a bit different from someone who's just murdered someone for saying something. Of course. Yeah, and, and you know, the ultimate, I mean, you, you referenced the uh, murder of uh, Theo van Gogh in the streets of Amsterdam, you know, one of the great historic citadels of tolerance and pluralism. He was literally, he had a note, you know, stabbed into his body saying, I and Hersey Ali, who had writ written the scenario for the movie that he was, uh, that he had directed for which he was killed. That's a wildly different situation than what, what Reason faced where, um, there's, a, there's a concept of true threat um, where if you just say, you know, you're blowing off steam and you're saying, oh, I could kill this person or I want to kill this person, it's not a true threat because there, there isn't any proximity, there isn't necessarily any real follow-through, et cetera. And one of the things that was hilarious is that in the, the federal uh, prosecutor's subpoena, and again, this was to a grand jury, so we had no way of stopping this because grand juries are given vast latitude to just, you know, get whatever information they want. There's very few limits on that, uh, which itself is a problem, but is somewhat separate from the, the speech issue. But they were saying, you know, you, these people are making credible threats, real threats, true threats against a federal judge. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you get back to us within, it was something like 72 hours or a week with the information about them. So it's like they were so terrified that these people were going, these commenters, uh, we're going to come and, and kill a federal judge that they gave us a week to comply to get the information, much of which was available in, like, in our profiles. It would have, like, one of the people had a Google Plus page listed as their contact, and it, the, so the federal government was so upset by this, but they didn't know where to turn, so they asked <laughs> us to get us information in a week. I mean, it's just ridiculous on the mm. face. And that is, you know, that's a real distinction. I mean, if it's a clear and present danger, if it's a call to immediate serious action, it's one thing. But otherwise, come on, speech is speech. Mm. Right, right. So on that note, to get the elephant out of the room, is flag burning free speech? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Unless, unless a person's wearing it, and then it's an assault. <laughs> but. So as journalists, do you think that President I'm sorry, Trump... if I can also just... I don't know if there are any Trump supporters out there. The, the really novel thing about the, the Trump comments on that wasn't simply a flag burning, because Hillary Clinton's against flag burning. All of these idiots, and a, a large majority of people in Congress, I think, are against flag burning. 
Um, he actually said that you should not only go to jail, but you should be stripped of your citizenship, which is truly kind of stunning. And that is a particularly interesting kind of meme or, or uh, uh, idea that goes through a lot of Trump talk of like some people are citizens, some people can't be citizens, or you could be a citizen, but we're going to get rid of you. And as a matter of law, there's no possibility of that happening. But it's it, right. disturbing to see him constantly reach in that direction. So as journalists, do you think that President Trump um, will be a credible threat to free speech? Why or why not? We'll, I mean, we'll, you're talking we'll, about we'll, it. Not we'll all we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on US elections. Uh, I, I wrote a book uh, while the election was going on, so I didn't follow it so closely. But I, I, I noticed the other way that um, Floyd Abrams, uh, a great First Amendment uh, lawyer in the U.S., uh, said to the Hollywood Reporter that uh, Donald Trump represents the greatest threat to the First Amendment since the Alien Sedition Act uh, from 1798. Um, and he contemplated that, uh, that the U.S media organization may consider suing uh, Trump for libel to fight him, you know, with his own weapons. Uh, if he, the weapon he wants to weaponize more. So, so to teach him a lesson. But I, I think it was more like a, a creative input. Uh, he just said, you know, we have to think about how to manage this uh, uh, situation. I mean, I think the, um, coming back to what you said about uh, citizenship, that... Uh, that on the one hand, uh, Trump is politically incorrect. Yeah, he he says things that uh, usually would be would be socially mar marginalized, and that's maybe mm -hmm. one of the reasons why he has so much uh, uh, support. But at the same time, he's very thin-skinned when people criticizes him, and and I see him as a populist, and and we also have these populists in, in in Europe. And I think a key notion of populism is this lack of plural, pluralism. That uh, we represent the people. We are against the elites or the foreigners or those who do not belong. Um, and I think that is a key challenge in in this current debate about free speech, be it uh, Donald Trump, be it uh, Islamists, be it uh, right-wing populists in, in Europe, be it left-wing mm -hmm. do-gooders. Uh, it's all about the lack of their ability to manage diversity or manage or cope with ideas and speech that they dislike. Uh, and that has been reinforced by the digital revolution, by mm -hmm. migration because every society is getting more and more diverse in terms of ethnicity, religion, and, uh, and culture. And I think that is, that is a staying challenge, independent of Trump or, or not. Um, and it's, it's a big issue in Europe, and I think it will also be a big issue uh, here and in other parts of the world as we move forward, because the world is not going to grow less diverse. Right. We have more and more people living in cities, and cities, you know, the, the difference between cities and countrysides is that cities are heterogeneous. They are not homogeneous in any way. So you, you have virtual and physical neighbors that you, that you didn't use to live next door to. Um, and and, uh, and uh, it, it raises what I believe is the key question here, the question of tolerance and the distorted understanding of tolerance that uh, you know, is being moved around. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, tolerance is 
basically a judicial political frame for managing disagreement. That you don't try to ban and you don't try to use violence to silence things that you hate. Uh, to many people it means either, you know, turn the other cheek, uh, that you are intolerant if you say something outrageous. Right. Uh, so in, in order to, to manage this new diversity, we have to get back and reinvent the notion of tolerance in... in what in, it means uh, the, to be tolerant. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in a diverse society, because Trump has trouble uh, managing diversity, Angela Merkel has trouble managing diversity, political parties have troubles, on college campuses they're not able to manage diversity. So, so we have to get back to these key uh, building bricks of the Enlightenment uh, uh, to be able to, to find a way to live in peace together in, in this new area, in, in this new era, without compromising fundamental liberties like freedom of expression or freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. Right. As you, as freedom you of movement. Freedom movement, you know, yes. Because this is uh, one of the things you touched on is, you know, you're talking about an Enlightenment ideal, which I think it needs to be um, redefended, if that if that's a word, because you know the Enlightenment has uh, become a dirty word in most academic circles. Uh, the Enlightenment is the dark Enlightenment. It, you know, it, the the Enlightenment. If you follow the Frankfurt School or other uh, scholars, it 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 ends in the uh, in the mass murder in Auschwitz. Um, it's not about factory farming, it's about factory murder. Uh, we need to defend the Enlightenment and that idea of cosmopolitanism, of globalism, which Trump, you know, Trump says, you know, and, and the people who support him, Hillary was a globalist. Obama is a globalist. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who deported more American, or not more Americans, but more uh, illegal immigrants than anybody else is a globalist somehow. But we, I think we need to take a stand for globalization in a positive way and make it a positive ideal, and that's based on this idea of freedom of movement, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, uh, and this is where a dynamic economy, a dynamic world, a fairer world, a more innovative world, a better world, a more prosperous world comes from. It is better that we trade with China than that we fight with China or we isolate China. It is better that we trade with Mexico and that the NAFTA agreement created a free trade zone in North America where there are effectively no uh, tariffs anywhere. That's a good thing, and we need to go back and kind of defend that. To go to the question of Trump and free speech uh, really quickly, he has his own idea. I mean, if he could, he would shut down everybody and every, every news organization and every you know, random person. I mean, uh, you know, and you, I do recommend you follow his Twitter account. At one point, he, he said he was in the green room at Fox News. Juan Williams, who, who works, at, he's like one of the liberals at Fox News, took some selfies with him, and he tweeted something along the lines of, like, Juan Williams took selfies with me, then slammed me on TV. What a bad man. And this is a guy who is, like, going to be the president of the United States. And he's that pissy about every interaction. Like, we need to hold him accountable and make fun of him on that. If he had his way, he would be terrible on free speech. Yeah, let's use cartoons. That always works out well. We'll have Donald Trump with a bomb in his hair rather than in his beard, right? Um, the, uh, but he also, as a matter of policy, for instance, Donald Trump, and this just shows how, like, what politicians want. Remember, it's all unintended consequences. We believe we know the law of unintended consequences. It's true for politicians as well. 
So he might want to shut down the New York Times or shut down Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, but he's also going to probably appoint an FCC that will get rid of stupid net neutrality laws that Hillary Clinton was totally in favor of that would totally discriminate and change kind of the underlying framework of how Internet speech and Internet expression and inter Internet data gets sent around. So on a certain level, he might, he might be awful in everything he says, and yet he might end up having a more positive effect in opening up the very framework uh, by which we, uh, we are more free to speak in more different contexts that we might not even be able to imagine yet. Just one, one follow-up uh, on, on diversity. Um, I, I mean, I basically agree with you, but I think we need to acknowledge that uh, diversity um, is very difficult and can be very painful. And, and, and for many years, it's because it's been, you know, very popular to celebrate diversity. It's kind of not correct to acknowledge that it is, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's painful, it's difficult, it creates conflict, uh, you have confrontations. And I think, I think one shouldn't, you know, celebrate diversity as a virtue or value in and by itself. It's, it's just a fact that you have to cope with. Cope with it. And it's not that, you know, the more diverse a society is, the better it is, or the more homogeneous it is, the worse it is. It's just two different types of societies. Um, and, and we have to be honest that it's, uh, it's not easy. Uh, and we see that all around the world right now. I, I want to go off of this idea of diversity. Uh, we were discussing a little bit earlier, um, before, before we started this discussion here, um, the early internet, or the early social internet, when people first started engaging, gave people an opportunity to find so many more subcultures and groups and ideas that they didn't really have access to previously. So in those ways, it had become much more diverse. It was, had this diversifying impact, where previously we didn't have that. But now, post-2016 uh, election in particular, we're having a lot of people blaming the polarization of uh, the voting public on the fact that we have things like algorithms that serve us the content that it knows that we're going to like. The fact that people push to unfollow, um, unfollow anyone who says things that they think are uncomfortable and friend them. If you say something a certain way, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna block you, I'm gonna do that. And then they turn around and say, how could Donald Trump have won? No one I know supports him, right? So yeah. what's at play here? Is it really, I mean, are the, people are uh, the problem? Do the people need to be trying to you know, diversify? I think, I think the children are the problem. You know, we keep looking to them as the solution, but they're really the problem. They're the ones that, <laughs> that's how we know the schools are no good, right? Because they're not learning anything. It's their problem. Uh, I would argue that, I, I agree that there's no question that social media and new media, or however we want to talk about it, the internet is being blamed for polarization. The fact of the matter is, and I, I really uh, am enamored of Morris Fiorina, a political scientist who is now associated with the Hoover Institution, who has talked about this going back at least 15 or 20 years about polarization in American politics. And the real problem isn't that Americans aren't polarized. You can find basically 60% of Americans easily think that illegal immigrants should be given a pathway to legalization or citizenship. 60% or more of Americans think that abortion laws should kind of stay where they are now and have been since Roe versus Wade. 
Uh, 60% you know, believe that pot should be legalized. There's, I mean, there's massive majorities and, mm -hmm. and you know, nobody cares about gay marriage anymore. This used to be a hot button issue and it's like it's one and it's, you know, there is massive majorities on many issues that supposedly divide us. The real problem is, is that in politics, in partisan politics, we can't express those opinions because the nominating processes by which uh, candidates are selected are governed by extremists in both the Republican and Democratic Party. And you can see this where there are no centrist Republicans anymore. There are no centrist Democrats anymore. They're all kind of extreme. It predates the rise of the web. Mm -hmm. And it's the political system that's the problem. And it also helps explain, and I'm actually bullish on this election because again and again, and this is something Matt Welch, my uh, reason colleague, and I talked about in our book, The Declaration of Independence, going back to say 1970, Fewer and fewer people identify as Republican or Democrat. Fewer and fewer people identify as liberal or conservative. Uh, they're moderates or they're libertarians. David Bowes, who's in the audience, did a, a great post using Gallup survey to show that actually uh, uh, libertarians are the single largest kind of ideological block roughly defined as socially liberal uh, and fiscally conservative or, you know, and, and we can pick, you know, uh, bones with that type of stuff. But it's, it's basically the political system we have does not allow us to express our agreement on many important issues. Mm -hmm. And we are vacating that political system. Fewer people want to be Republican. Fewer people want to be Democratic. And we saw uh, that with party this election. Members. Yeah, no, and it's kind of a great outcome that one horrible candidate who is historically disliked won the Electoral College. The other historically disapproved candidate won the popular vote. Neither of them could get 50%. Uh, they have a total monopoly on political discourse, and they suck, and we know it, and we're, we're leaving that behind. We're migrating, uh, we're migrating somewhere else, and hopefully it's a world beyond politics. I mean, we need to keep an eye on politics and keep it small in our lives. But, but this, is, this is progress, that we have an election where nobody won clearly and nobody got 50%. And I'm hoping in 2020, especially if Joe Biden runs, I mean, we might be seeing major parties like pulling in the, the single digits. And if, we can, if somebody knows where Gary Johnson's hiding at, I think the third time might be the charm for him. It's like Reagan. Yeah. Um, on social media and uh, what you said about... The diversity uh, of ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But I, I, think, I think that is a huge challenge. Um, uh, because we we have this innate tendency to look for material and stuff uh, with which we agree, uh, and that does not challenge us. So so you have these echo chambers and uh, and communities that don't know what is going on uh, in other communities. And I think, I, I don't think that polarization in and by itself is a problem. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes it's great to have polarization and good things come out of it because it is, you have a heated argument. But I think, I think in terms of knowledge production, I think it's very, um, it's very beneficiary to be exposed to point of views uh, with which you disagree and even hate or dislike. Mm -hmm. and, and when it comes to moderation, I mean, you have these social psychology um, uh, test that shows that if you put people of the same opinion in a room and they talk about you know the issue on which they disagree when they come out they will be more radicals and the same with people of the opposite point of view but if you put people from both groups in the same room they will tend to 
you know, to to okay. to moderate their uh, 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 opinions and and. Uh, and 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 also for knowledge production, I just think it's healthy to uh, to talk to people with whom you uh, you disagree. Uh, also to figure out, you know, what you disagree about, and you can refine your own arguments, and not just talk to people with whom you agree on everything. And I think I think social media reinforces, unfortunately, that uh, that bad trend. I think I I'm I'm not fully convinced that we're more polarized than ever uh, in our daily lives, or that we're sorting as much as some people say. Okay. So that, you know, I, I, you know that everybody just lives around people who are exactly like them or think like them. But taking I, there's no question that uh, that kind of self selection or confirmation bias is problematic. And to go back to the enlightenment question, and I also love the phrase knowledge production, um, that's, it's really key. That's what universities, I think, should be for. They're not for teaching students. They're for producing knowledge and, and debate and, and synthesis. And the next step forward, I think societies that produce a lot of knowledge do better. Um, going back to the Enlightenment question, you know, what, what are the institutions that we need to, do you think that we need to build up so that we take that seriously and that we're teaching our children not that, okay, look, mommy and daddy have all the answers and we have to force it down the throat of the, you know, the, the people that don't agree with us, but how do we, how do, what are the institutions that would build up that kind of enlightenment belief in tolerance, in pluralism, in conflict that is resolved peacefully and intellectually or even emotionally as opposed to violently? I, th I think the school. Yeah. I mean, it's schools and families where you bring up kids, mm -hmm. And uh, you you uh, you teach them the benefit of being exposed to things that makes you uncomfortable because the instinctive reaction will be I don't like this, mm. uh, and and uh, I mean I have a grandson uh, who is very ambivalent in playing soccer, and I take him to soccer every Saturday morning and. Uh, Sometimes so he, you he, wanted he liked, to be a soccer star, but you never were able yes, to. Yes, so that's true. I was very quick to become a professional, <laughs> yes. Um, but but uh, so he's ambivalent, but I take him every time, and I can see that even though he's ambivalent, uh, you know, after a long period of time, he starts to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, so, so I think we have to teach our kids uh, this knowledge production process uh, and, and, and tolerance that uh, it's okay that you don't like what uh, you know, the other guy says, but it's, it may be beneficial to you to listen and, uh, and engage in a conversation. And, uh, um, and, and, but, but, but the trend is that we have to protect our children. Right because there's so many bad things out there. So we don't expose them to things that makes them uncomfortable. Including in the schools. Uh, and, and, and this brings me back to the concept of tolerance. Yeah. Uh, so so you, have to, you have to teach tolerance this way, that, that, uh, that it's, it's good to be exposed to things that you dislike. Yeah. Kind of on the same track of exposing people to ideas, uh, prior to the election here in the US, um, there's a big controversy that had uh, conservatives up in arms uh, saying that Facebook was censoring them uh, based upon the uh, trending news stories mechanism and how stories were being selected for that. Now, after the election, uh, we're hearing a lot about fake news and why isn't Facebook doing more in order to, figure, in order to make sure that certain stories are being told and other ones aren't. 
Is this a partisan divide that we're seeing, or is there something else at play here? Uh, well, I think in the fake news story, the you know, the one thing that uh, Clinton supporters, and not even necessarily, I think, Hillary Clinton supporters, but people who preferred her to win over Donald Trump, and particularly the more dyed-in-the-wool Democratic Party uh, apparatchiks or, or members are, they are, I think the less they're likely to say, okay, she lost not because of voter suppression, she lost uh, because of anything. You know, they don't want to blame her for the loss because that doesn't compute to them. But she just did not bring out the people she needed to bring out to vote. Her uh, people were talking about she was going to have a more diverse coalition of different interest groups than Obama. She didn't, and as a matter of fact, she ended up basically polling. You know what uh, what polls expected her to. She was you know was within a couple of points of beating Trump, but she didn't pull people out, and it was her fault that she lost. And and but people are searching her partisans are searching for reasons to explain her inexplicable loss, which mm -hmm. is actually kind of understandable when you look at the number of votes that were cast uh, and the, the lack of enthusiasm that had dogged her through the entire process to a point where Bernie Sanders, who is a joke, I mean, he is a joke as a candidate, uh, he, and uh, he had no good ideas. I mean, this is a guy who is... The, the, the final in favor season of the, of the Danish model. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> don't, I mean, it don't, was don't offend the, the final season, the bonus <laughs> season of that '70s show. I mean, this is a guy who hadn't had a new thought in 40 years. Was able to take her pretty close to the wire. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was her fault, and Trump barely won. And I'm not saying That's either. It's not brothers. a legitimate win. It's a totally legitimate win. But the fact, just because a lot of his people are like foaming at the mouth, and uh, you know, if you ever go on Twitter and Make make a joke. You can't even make a joke at Democrats' expense that makes you know with Donald Trump in it. Because uh, the other day Donald Trump was uh, in Cincinnati, and uh, during all the cable shows were showing his you know the people in the stadium he was at, and it was a totally white audience. And I tweeted, um, I haven't seen an audience this white since Prairie Home Companion came to Cincinnati. So it was a joke at the expense of Garrison Keillor and, you know, the white mob at NPR. And I'm still getting attacks from <laughs> Trumpites who are like, oh, how dare, you know, why are you saying, why are you bringing race into everything? Uh, they're a thin-skinned bunch. There aren't that many of them, actually. There were enough to get them in the White House. Good for mm -hmm. them. You know, wonderful. We can, we can work with that uh, as libertarians because we're coming at it, we have a future-oriented philosophy. We're interested in technology. We're interested in true diversity, diversity of, of different peoples, of different foods, of different genders, of, you know, of, of different ideas. Yeah, I mean, we're the future. This is going to be a very good time for us, uh, as long as we don't get caught up in trying to be you know, Republicans or Democrats in any kind of uh, dunderheaded way. Mm -hmm. Just one, one additional point. Uh, you know, every time you have a discussion about fairness of fake reporting or um, impolite speech or whatever it is, uh, the usual suspect is always free speech. Mm -hmm. You know, let, let's ban something, then uh, everything will get better. It's the easy way out uh, for politicians and for, uh, uh, you know, group with a specific agenda. It, it, it doesn't help. Uh, that's not the way to do it. And I think in this old discussion about Facebook and um, social media, we, we, we shouldn't forget, even though you know, I'm not a Marxist or a socialist, we shouldn't forget that they are businesses. 
they are here to make money and uh, not to create knowledge but production or uh, challenge people. They have to make them comfortable. Uh, um, so so um, we shouldn't fool ourselves mm -hmm. about you know what uh, Facebook and Google are, are doing. And, and, and if I can, just to follow up on that, we, we have been talking about this a bit before. That is something else, you know, that I think Trump is really bringing to the fore. He's not a capitalist. I, you know, he's not a Milton Friedman capitalist. He's not like John Mackey of Whole Foods. He's not like Patrick Byrne of Overstock, who are committed libertarians. They're committed businessmen as well, and that's important. But Google and Facebook have already shown that they're more than willing to accommodate autocratic regimes, authoritarian regimes, uh, and, you know, that's, they're right and everything, but we should not fool ourselves that, you know, they will respond to what the market demands ultimately. And at this point, the market and politics can be pretty close. We need to create, I guess, you know, to go back to that question of, of building up this market for enlightenment ideas of tolerance, of pluralism, of, of, of diversity of thought and diversity of lifestyle. We need to make that the clear market choice so that, Given the option, Google will say, okay, you know what, we're, we're going to go with like the market forces that say we want more discussion, more diversity, more conflict that is mediated in a, in a positive, thoughtful way, rather than going with stupid speech laws or speech codes. Or the, I mean, the European Union's code of conduct for hate speech is insane, and you were saying that you know, because Facebook and Google aren't getting on their knees fast enough, the EU is now saying, okay, we'll follow up with legislation, which will be a thousand times worse. But we, you know, let's, we, this is a fight that will be fought until we die. Right. So you I, know, what, what, what uh, Nick is talking about is a code of conduct that was signed by Facebook, Google, Twitter, and YouTube right. uh, earlier this year with the European Commission in order to fight hate speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, the problem in that code of conduct is there is no clear definition of what hate speech is. And, and they are obliged to remove hate speech content within 24 hours. Yes. And, and uh, uh, the European Commission so far is quite dissatisfied and they have threatened these companies to pass laws. So it's not just a code of conduct if they don't move faster on, uh, on these notifications. I think they have received 600 notifications within uh, six months or, or, or Right, so. and certainly Twitter and Facebook have both cracked down significantly in their own TOS and their managerial practices in the time since on what they'll allow you to say or do or what they'll do even if you're an individual who's uh, managing a page, for instance. Yeah, but you have to delete those comments or else your page will get punished well, for it. Well, on Twitter, I mean, only, what, maybe a month or two ago, uh, deleted a bunch mm -hmm. of alt-right uh, yep. accounts. And again, Twitter, it's a private, uh, you know, it's a private enterprise. It's their, their sandbox. They can, you know, kick anybody out they want. But it's fundamentally stupid um, because, you know, the way that I think you manage that kind of issue is by giving, I mean, they, they kicked these people out even as they were expanding the tools by which you could block or suppress people mm -hmm. you don't want to hear from, which again is both great and there are problems there. I mean, we need to be critical in, and nuanced in our understanding of that. But, you know, this, um, we, you know, again, we need to be in favor of more speech is always better than less speech, even if it's really stupid speech, you know, and we can ignore it or we can engage it. Um, but, you know, there's, there are problems. The, the upside of that is that Twitter 
as a medium is has been flat. Um, it is no, you know, Instagram and Snapchat are actually have more daily users. Nobody wants to buy Twitter. Yeah, and so I that's don't, actually, you know, Twitter, I, Twitter's interesting because you're you know, talking about this market mechanism. And yeah, of course, they have all these legal, legal repercussions that they're right. looking at, but they're also looking at their... Uh, their stock price tanking at a yeah. time when people were saying that they were the platform for yeah. white supremacists or white nationalists. Well, but so they were also, also, but I mean, it's also partly because they're getting ants here about they're cutting more people off uh, mm -hmm. who are, you know, white supremacists or alt-righters or whatever. And, um, you know, they, uh, they suspended the account of Glenn Reynolds, who, uh, the Instapundit, yep. Who is a you know a legal blogger who's one of the main guys on the internet really like that was in nuts you know and like I think the there to the extent that the platform is flattening and their stock market price is tanking it's more because they're seen as being too PC not that they're not PC enough or that they're suddenly a hotbed for you know uh, like some kind of Waffen SS tribute band or something. Right. So on that note, what is the line? Uh, when we're talking about government restrictions versus private company restrictions on free expression. It's, you know, we're libertarians. We tend to believe that um, private companies should be able to run their businesses they want to. It's freedom of association. But at the same time, we're talking about how closely intertwined all of this is. No, I think, I think you have to make that distinction. Uh, and if, if, if you don't like the restrictions that a private company uh, imposes, then you can leave and uh, don't work there and don't buy the product or mm -hmm. whatever it is. But, but I, think, I think media, if they insist that they are, you know, a for, is the fourth estate that has a right and obligation to control you know, the judiciary, uh, the executive, and uh, legal powers, then they need to be transparent and, uh, you know, self-critical and, uh, and look inward to an extent that other businesses don't necessarily have to. They can just make decisions because they are here to make money, mm -hmm. uh, and that's fine. But if you, if you insist on that kind of semi-power uh, status, then, then I think it goes with certain obligations as well, uh, also when it comes to free speech. You know, the, the United States is uh, odd and, uh, you know, uh, and, and unique and maybe exceptional in the, you know, in the language of the First Amendment, mm -hmm. which took a while, you know, to get to come into being. But, you know, Congress should make no law. We know that, con you know, it's, it's, it's not at all opaque. Government doesn't have any role in regulating speech. Um, private businesses, and this is a, an interesting question about transparency because part of the argument about the Facebook question, were they using algorithms to kind of trash or keep conservative news down mm -hmm. in the election, it's unclear. And I don't even think they know necessarily fully what was going on. Um, a lot and, of it is done by little robots. Yeah, and, and it's not clear what any of that means. It's also like a lot of the news stories you know, I'm sorry, but Breitbart.com is a powerful force in media. It is not a news site. You know, it's it's an opinion site, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's you know it yeah, it's not news. I mean, it it shouldn't be treated the same way in an algorithm as something else. By the same token, I I agree completely. You should recognize we don't. I don't have any control over Facebook. 
Facebook is a little bit different than, say, a publication like Reason. We can, you know, we're transparent in what we publish and why we publish it. Um, you know, and we control it completely, and we should. Readers can read it or not. They can comment or not, as long as the federal government isn't, you know, on our ass about it. Facebook pretends to be this platform. It's a little bit different. It's not a publication, mm -hmm. and they need to be more transparent. They have a right to do whatever they want, but then they will either reap the rewards or suffer the consequences. When they're, if they're walled garden, every flower looks the same in their walled garden, and this is, uh, you know, that's what they're trying to build. They're trying to keep people mm -hmm. in um, in uh, in Facebook. So you never want to leave or you never have to leave. If it starts looking like a really dull subdivision or, you know, fake uh, cityscape. Uh, and they're already the... facing this problem. They're yeah. not getting, they've got attrition and they yeah. have younger folks so who they are need, You know, they're going to have to be more diverse and they're going to have to put in, you know, in the Westworld vision of this, they're going to have to put in that samurai module so people can go check out that part of the park and not just the Wild West. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I'm sure everyone in the audience has a lot of questions, so we'll get to those. But before, I have one more for you. Um, based upon the fact that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had called for closing down parts of the web, we've talked about uh, the Silk Road. Within 24 hours of each other, Right, by the precisely. Way. Like really Lots of parallels great. between the two. Yeah, this is, every time um, you're like, no, there actually is a difference between the Republican and Democratic Party. Something <laughs> like that happens. Where a the, little reminder. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, we talked about, you know, your article was about the Silk Road, which was, of course, on the deep web, accessible through Tor and other uh, things like that. Is there ever a justification for the government to shut down parts of the Internet, such as the deep web or particular websites or message boards or things like that? And if so, what would it be? I mean, it's going on in Europe uh, every day right now uh, when it comes to jihadist uh, content. And uh, Denmark's parliament just passed a law where, you know, it becomes a criminal offense to share extremist content. So if you are a scholar and you study ISIS uh, and you want to share Dabik, which is the magazine of ISIS, with a colleague, uh, you may end up in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's very, very problematic. Um, oh, we've uh, had we, people get punished here as well. For instance, um, the Dallas Police Department, after uh, the shooting that happened earlier this year, arrested several people who had tweeted um, saying that it was good that cops died in Dallas. I mean, yeah, I mean that's very offensive, but I don't think it's a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you should react. You should, uh, you know. Uh, yell at these people and uh, denounce them, but uh, I don't think you should uh, criminalize uh, that kind of speech. There are websites that are criminal enterprises. I mean, there are fraudulent websites that rip people off. I think uh, something like child pornography, uh, it, the child pornography, the production of it is the, uh, it's kind of evidence of a crime taking place. So the production of it Websites that produce it, yeah, they, they could be shut down. Um, among consenting adults, no, but the, the, uh, the, the uh, Justice Department actually does that uh, from time to time, which I think is stupid. So I think there are clear cases that are extremely rare and limited and kind of self-evident in a way, uh, yeah, where the government can shut down certain websites. I don't think the government 
can shut down parts of the internet. They can make it more difficult to operate. They can make it a tax, you know, in, times, in terms of your time or in terms of the possible outcome. But they really don't have that. And that was one of the things that was strange about Donald Trump, you know, who I'm hoping will be a very successful president. He actually says certain things about regulation I agree with. You mentioned the FCC, might be good on that. So far, he's good on school choice. He talked about, yeah, you know, why not give people more school choice? I'm for that. Uh, but he also, you know, this, you know, he doesn't grasp a lot of the details. And when he talked about shutting down that internet, he said, you know, I'm going to talk to Bill Gates. And it's kind of like you're already, you know, Bill Gates had his lunch eaten by the internet. I mean, that was Microsoft's downfall of migrating to the internet. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not expecting a lot of like visionary leadership on his part. Uh, but to the strength of this, he can't shut it down, and most governments can't for very long. Right, the internet's like Hydra. You cut off one head, it pops up That's somewhere. Right, hell Hydra, hell Hydra. <laughs> do we have any questions from the audience? Um, I do ask that you keep them short, and I'm going to repeat them back so the folks on the live stream can hear them. Okay. We can, uh, okay. I'm a citizen journalist, and most of my stuff is free, which a lot of people don't like because I'm competing with them. My basic question is this. The terror threat, the jihadi terror threat that we've been hearing, particularly from ISIS, seems to be trying to make ordinary civilians in Western countries in the United States into targets as if they were combatants, and as if they were on the hook for anything we do. In other words, create a state of war in the United States. Does that justify more censorship or more control of the internet or emergency powers? Um, that could be particularly relevant in the way I operate. It's something I'm very concerned about. It's, okay. Could, could that really be used as justification because individual citizens are being made target in ways that it's unprecedented? If we're in a state of war, if we're in a perpetual state of war, should comments made online or through citizen journalists be treated as if they're being made during war powers? Uh, well, you know, this is an argument against perpetual states of war. Uh, wars that don't have clear objectives or clear endpoints or moments where we don't even know if we've won. Those are bad wars to wage, whether it's a war on pot or a war on poverty or a war on radical jihad. Um, and I, I would leave it more to the uh, to the person who is the actual object both of governmental censorship, corporate censorship, and uh, personal attacks <laughs> to, 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 I, I don't know I, quite I, how you I, do I, it. I, I didn't understand the question. So I think he's asking if, um, if, we, if there are constantly wars going on, if we're in a constant state of war, yes. does that change how people should be censored online and journalists should be censored? Well, I think, I think the, uh, the historical uh, evidence speaks to the fact that in times of war, governments tend to overreact. Mm -hmm. and, and it's very easy to, you know, to uh, turn up the heat on, on, uh, on, on free speech and censorship, but it's very difficult uh, to... Uh, Reverse it. Yeah, so, so I, I, I think experience tells us that... Uh, the tendency is that governments do overreact, and 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 uh, because in a state of war, you you know you want to identify enemies, uh, your your tolerance of uh, of speech is uh, you know filed over, uh, 
And, and, and quite often afterwards, when people look at that, they say, why, 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 why didn't we have to ban that kind of speech? Uh, but it's, it's a natural reaction, but I think you have to be on guard because people, people tend to re overreact. And we saw it after 9-11. I mean, if you, if, you, if, you saw it, if you today look at the kind of laws that were passed and the kind of powers that were given to the executive, uh, uh, how can that happen in a liberal democracy? But uh, that was a reaction too. To tie it into fake news versus real news and ongoing arguments about uh, journalism, and to the particular question of individual citizen journalists, I don't, you know, I don't know any journalists. They're citizens of some country, right? We're all citizens journalists. There's a constant push among a, a kind of professional class to say mm -hmm. we need to certify what, who is a real journalist yes. and who isn't. Do bloggers get the same constitutional protections? as you know, somebody at the New York Times. And it's like, yeah, of course they do. There's no distinction to be drawn in that. And one of the ways that I think we need to talk about this overreaction is to make sure stuff like journalism shield laws, where you get to mm -hmm. hide your sources because you work for the Times or something. These are all funny baloney ways of licensing and regulating the press. And uh, you know, the, one of the great things about America is that we dealt with that in the colonial era, essentially. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't go down that road again. Right, definitely. Um, the, I'd like to ask this question from Julia Vargas on um, Twitter. Asks, is the production of knowledge under threat with the rise of social media? We'll have to wait and see. But I, 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 what, I what I said, you know, this, uh, this reinforcement of confirmation bias uh, goes against the knowledge production. And, and it's, a, it's kind of built into the business model of, uh, of Facebook uh, and other social media. Uh, but I don't think you have, to, you know, you can draw that as as a clear cut, clear, clear cut conclusion. We'll have to work on it. <laughs> One yeah. of the things too that I think is good about, I mean, yeah, knowledge production is something we should always be guarding, uh, you know, in favor of. Like we should be making it easier. I uh, uh, think a lot about Justin Amash, the libertarian-leaning uh, Republican congressman from Michigan. He talked about how when he was at University of Michigan Law School, which, by the way, is a, is a well-regarded law school of a terrible football school. Um, but uh, he was told by somebody, he always thought of himself as a conservative Republican because that's the family he grew up in. Um, and then somebody said, no, you're a libertarian. And he says he went home and he Googled libertarian and he recognized who he was. So in that sense, I think social media... I think uh, the internet more broadly, I think this whole idea of social media is more a marketing term than a, than a lived reality necessarily. But it's, it's definitely true. You can live in a better, more well-furnished bubble than ever before, but you can also find more weird shit all over the place than ever before. And we were talking about this. If, you were, if you're my age, I'm in my early 50s, and I wanted to get Reason Magazine or a Cato publication, I would mail away and it would take months and then they wouldn't get it right or it wouldn't show up. And, you know, it was just very hard. It's so much easier as a millennial to get more information at your fingertips about something. You know, you're watching History Channel mm -hmm. and you're type, you know, you've got your laptop or your tablet out and you're, you're Wikipediaing stuff as a show is going on. I think it's a much richer environment for that kind of interesting... More access. Yeah. I can uh, say for myself, fertilization. too, I, I discovered the Cato Institute as a teenager on the Internet because someone sent me the four-way political test, and I found out I was a libertarian and started reading about it. There you go. 
Just, just a follow-up point um, on knowledge production and the threat to knowledge production. I think a problem is the value the culture and society today put into emotions. Mm. You know, if you feel something, it's right. And it's very difficult to, uh, to argue with somebody who insists, you know, that's what I feel. Mm. And, and I think social media with, you know, liking and sharing instead of, you know, making more elaborate uh, arguments for one position or another also feeds this uh, status of, uh, of uh, emotions. Uh, and I think, I think that's undermining uh, uh, knowledge uh, production because you can, you can, I mean, that's what's going on on, on campuses if you say, I'm offended. Yeah. Uh, it's a way of saying, please shut up. And it's a very powerful uh, argument, and it feels very intimidating because you don't want to offend other people. Yeah, you want to be nice. Uh, and in some schools, instead of focusing on the difference between Denmark and my home state of New Jersey, <laughs> nobody wants to be nice in New Jersey. But yeah, I, th I think you're. Uh, the uh, the emphasis on feelings and on emotional responses is strong. I think it's always been that way, and I, you know, and I say this to somebody who, who edited the print magazine and works for an organization called Reason. Um, I wanted when I became editor of the magazine, I was like, "Can I change the name to Limits to Reason?" Because that is more in keeping with my sense of things. But I I agree, it's it's hard, but it's also I you know again we have more platforms by which to host debates and conversations and to be persuasive. And if I can put on my kind of libertarian movement hat or classical liberal movement hat, you know, one of the things that we need to think about, especially in an era where the old dogmas are dying and people are looking, young people, old people, uh, you know, are looking for something new. We also need to think about being persuasive, not simply expressive and saying, oh, you know what, the perfect libertarian solution is private sidewalks and private air, and you know, you you know, you come on my property, I'll shoot you, yeah, whatever. But we're also trying to persuade people by uh, engendering or imagining a world that people want to live in because it's interesting and prosperous and fair and rewarding um, and moral. And so that that's something you know. I know I slip into every once in a while, especially at those you know. Uh, small wee hour, uh, wee small hour Twitter uh, moments. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you want to be Donald persuasive, not simply expressive. Uh, on that note, uh, I have another question here from Twitter. Corey Vollinger asks, how can we differentiate free speech from obscene or public indecency? Is it dangerous to let judges make this distinction? Well, uh, just a short point. I, 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 I think I think uh, we shouldn't. We, we should leave as little as possible up to judges. Mm -hmm. And and that ten, you know, the, the, there is an inclination. And you're to not going to say that they should be put into wood chippers no. or anything, right? Okay, because if I, if so, I'm under a court order just to kind of pretend I can't hear. No, but I I I, I think you too many politicians and the public every time you are confronted with a new problem or with a challenge. Uh, you know, let, let's, let's pass a law mm -hmm. to fight this problem. And I, 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 I think we need to be more, uh, you know, moderate about that. Uh, but, but, but one man's hate speech is another, man po another man's poetry. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with decency and obscenity. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, 
you used a certain word uh, talking here. You don't think it's uh, you know indecent, but there may be people out in the public who. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there so. are, and I'm exactly. sure I'll hear and from that's, them. That's a matter of taste and and uh, individual. Uh, uh, you know, so. it's been my life's dream to work blue on C-SPAN, so I may have accomplished that today. Uh, <laughs> but obscenity, by the way, is a made-up fake category. There's no there's no such thing as obscenity as a legal. Uh, you know, as a constitutional principle. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, we've been moving away from that. If you don't like somebody's speech, mm -hmm. block them. Move out of earshot. Don't turn to that channel. Don't read that book. Don't read that website. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, a real positive evolution that the, you know, most of you probably don't even, have never heard the uh, phrase banned in Boston, you know, which was a thing because Boston would ban all sorts of stuff. And it's like, it's really hard to do that, and I think that's good. Public indecency is a little bit different because in public spaces there is right. a lower, uh, you know, you have the more public a space is, um, meaning that it's in full view and that you can infringe on other people's equal rights, there's a lower standard of self-expression. But isn't the internet very public? I mean, if there is a public space. I, I, you know what? I Other than the... Uh, the porn ads that you know fill my inbox or uh, my web browser without me ever going there once, I don't know many websites that I'm forced to go to. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, I mean, it's really it's all a pull mechanism. I'm 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 firing up my browser. The browser isn't firing me up. You know. Okay. Fred Boning from the Daily Ripple. Um, today we watched the president-elect uh, manipulate the stock of a, uh, of a major corporation with a tweet. Um, is, there a, uh, is there some sort of freedom of speech that, that eliminates the president from using that to um, profit from that? I mean, if he knows, okay, look, I don't like this company, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy short on them and then I'm going to say a tweet on it um, and manipulate the stocks, I mean, he has, uh, he has Robert Mercer, a hedge fund manager behind him, and all these other bankers that would right. certainly be able to benefit from that. Uh, is there is there a, an infringement of of speech by telling the president he can't do that legally? That's I I don't know. yeah I don't know I you know the one thing I'll say I'm much more troubled uh, by the president elect's actions towards Carrier. And a couple of other companies supposedly is going to bail out or, or make stay in the United States in Indiana. There's a ball bearing company that whose name I'm forgetting right now. Uh, with Boeing, uh, you know, on a, on a certain level, and this is an unprincipled answer and an emotional answer, Boeing has gotten enough tax subsidies through the Export-Import Bank and a wide variety of state, local, and federal subsidies that they can suck it up for a while for a plane that they're over budget on delivering. Um, I do think, you know, what we're seeing here actually, though, with a president who is as uh, kind of unbounded as, as Trump, we're going to see some interesting uh, kind of situations that we really couldn't have thought about before. And so I, I don't have a clear answer to that, but, uh, you know, Boeing stock price is a, is a small order issue for me compared to kind of national protectionist economic policy more broadly. That, that I think, is going to have more problems for us in, in the future. All right. I think we have room for one final question from the audience. 
I'm Bill Shireman. I'm with Future 500, but I teach at, uh, at Haas Business School. And I've noticed over the last year that I, I think, and I think you would probably agree, that, that there's tremendously more support on campus by students for free and open speech and even uncomfortable speech than there is for uh, 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 bans or restrictions or safe spaces and so on. Uh, and yet we do, as, as uh, faculty, uh, have... Uh, some guidelines that have been provided to us to, you know, to limit that kind of that kind of speech. Uh, given that the combative uh, uh, forces are always going to attract more media attention and seem to have more uh, 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 dominant support than they actually do, what are folks in the free market community doing to really actively take advantage of this opportunity on campuses and bring more people into this movement? right now when they are really ready. A lot of students see the problem. They see it every day. They want to be organized, but it's not going to, it's not going to just happen through, uh, uh, I'm sorry to say, free uh, 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 media coverage. Right. It's just not sexy. Uh, what, is, what are people who care about issue, this issue doing to attract people who don't necessarily find themselves in that box on the, on the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the quiz? Uh, to join and begin to learn what freedom and free markets and free speech are all about? I don't know. I don't have a uh, an answer. Uh, Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> 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 no, I, I don't know. Um, I uh, think that there's a, a, n a number of things that are being done. And, uh, you know, a, a, an outfit like Cato uh, and some of the groups that have come out of Cato, including Students for Liberty, uh, which was founded by a, a, a Cato intern who had also first worked at Reason, by the way. I just want to put that out there. Uh, Young Americans for Liberty. Uh, there are a growing number of campus groups that bring people to campuses and actually stage events and, and lectures and panels and whatnot at universities, which I think is a, is a good place to start. Uh, when you look at something like the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, uh, which I think lays claim uh, to being the oldest libertarian organization. Uh, they're rejuvenated. They're reaching more students in high school uh, probably than ever before. Reason uh, is talking to millennials uh, and younger people in terms of both the way that we talk about the future, the way that we talk about topics that relate to things like mm -hmm. privacy, security, free speech, gender, uh, you know, like acceptance of, of more than a binary choice in genders, just as... We shouldn't accept a binary choice in politics. Let's open up the binaries, things like that. And I think that's one way to do it. Um, and I think this, to go to that question of knowledge production, we need to be producing the public intellectuals. Libertarians need to be producing public intellectuals who are writing work that engages a broad-based, multi-aged, multi-generational public with the ideas of freedom and liberty and showing the positive outcomes of giving people freedom. Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. Just the word liberty is now so bound with with presumptions and republicanism and so on yeah. that I think it turns a lot of students off, but it closes the door before they get there. I agree, and that and that's an ongoing issue. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Reason did this big poll of millennials, uh, and it was done by uh, overseen by Emily Eakins, who is now working at the Cato Institute. 
Um, and uh, one of the things we found in that was that uh, it was something like 42% of people 18 to 29 had positive views of socialism. And it's like, holy cow, this is a lost generation. And then we followed up. The, the follow-up question was, well, what does socialism mean? And they had no idea. And so we were letting language that was imprecise get in the way because then we asked in, in, a, in a parallel question, do you think, uh, is it better to have a government-managed economy or should, in, you know, should free markets govern? Uh, the economy, and everybody was in favor of free markets. So it's a constant search to find what is that language that unlocks the next generation and pulls those of us who are older who remember the Cold War. Uh, Fleming and I were talking about this. You know, we, in, in America, we have a foreign policy that is still stuck in, in a Cold War mentality, and we're fighting, uh, you know, radical Islam as if it's the Soviet Union circa 1960. You know, the, the Cold War wasn't as clear-cut as we thought it was, and trying to transpose that matrix, decision matrix, onto something today is totally wrong. And the same thing happens with our movement. We need to constantly be refreshing our terms, our understanding. What is important to people today is not what was important to Barry Goldwater in 1964, and we need to, we need to understand that and act on that for sure. And the terms that people use are completely different. Yeah. I, I, I would say if, if liberty is a Republican word, then, then uh, I mean, I spoke about tolerance. To, mo to most people, tolerance is, in fact, a positive word. It has positive connotations. So, so uh, I mean, that's a way to start. Um, the, 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 the connection between free speech and tolerance is, you know, um, if you break that, you don't have uh, neither tolerance nor free speech. Um, so. so with that, I'd like to ask both of you, in just one or two sentences, what do you really want people to get out of this discussion today? What's the most important thing that they can go home with? Um, I think I'm going to repeat myself. Um, <laughs> I, I think the world is getting you know, increasingly more diverse. Mm -hmm. And in order to be able to live together in this increasingly diverse world, tolerance is, in fact, a key concept. Uh, not in the way it's being taught uh, and talked about in everyday life, that it means that you should shut up and not say offensive things, that, but the ability to live with things that you hate without banning them or using intimidation, threats, or violence to uh, to to uh, to shut them up, and and I think this will just move further and further up uh, the agenda. More and more people are living in cities, uh, uh, so we will we will be confronted with this uh, every day. And unfortunately, too many too many politicians believe that uh, that that. Um, you know, the more diversity we have in terms of culture, ethnicity, and religion, the less diversity we need in terms of speech. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think it's a counterintuitive. Uh, I mean, it goes with the territory. If you welcome more diversity of culture, you will also need to uh, welcome more diversity of speech in order to provide space to every individual in a society. And that implies, of course, that no one has a right not to be offended. That's also one of the things that we have to teach our children. 
coming back to my grandson and his soccer Sunday. What uh, position does he play, by the way? He doesn't play a position yet. He's only four years old, so we're just uh, <laughs> kicking the ball. I, uh, I'm looking at, in preparation for this, I printed out a, uh, I write for the Daily Beast, and uh, a, a year ago I uh, wrote a piece for them uh, that was titled, or they titled, How the Feds Asked Me to Rat Out Commenters. Uh, that happened under the Obama regime. It's going to happen as frequently, if not more frequently, under a Trump regime. Uh, we need to fight that always and everywhere. Uh, and it's going to happen, you know, on Facebook. It's going to happen in the corporate space, in a cultural space, in a religious space, in a political space. We should always be fighting against that. And the other thing that I will say, just as a kind of add-on, is that if we all broadly believe in classical liberal goals, of enlightenment goals, of libertarian goals, really think about being persuasive rather than being right in every conversation. And I'm the worst offender at this, but you know what we're trying to do here is build a world that is better than the one we inherited. I think it is getting better, and the way that we will make it better still is by getting more people to want to hang out with us, not by saying, oh, yeah, you know, your, uh, you know, your uh, clitorectomy culture is so great. It's like it's just as good as mine where we let people decide who they want to be. It's not being that kind of tolerant, that kind of cel mindless celebration of diversity. It's actually saying, look, um, you know, we can go to, uh, I don't know how many of you are in D.C., but we, we, can, we can live in a world that is like the socialist Safeway on 17th Street, where there's not, and it's much better than it was 10 years ago, but it, we can live in a crappy supermarket world like that, or we can go to Whole Foods. You know, which world do you want to be in? One is inviting, one is vibrant, one is different, one is constantly changing and morphing and mutating, as Schumpeter said, in, in anticipation of our desires and our needs and our wants, or we can go someplace where there's only one kind of eggplant, you know, and, and we, need to be, we need to be persuasive, not simply right in every conversation when we talk about freedom and liberty. We want to live in a world with many types of eggplants. As many as we can, and I realize I think I just signaled my Al-Qaeda masters with <laughs> eggplant is, Now in a land of emojis, eggplant means something totally different, and I apologize, C-SPAN. Um, on that note, thank all of you for coming out here tonight, and for those of you who tuned in on C-SPAN or one of our online channels, um, I hope all of you will enjoy this discussion today and we'll continue it out in the uh, Winter Garden for our reception. Uh, Fleming Rose has graciously offered to be signing copies of his book, so if you'd like a copy, please feel free to pick up. It's, um, the, it's just come out in paperback very recently, so very convenient. And um, please feel free to sign up for the mailing list to get, hear about future Cato Digitals. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.